Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to By His Grace. I am excited to bring you some bonus episodes. The Lord has opened the door for me to squeeze in some additional interviews. So for the next couple of weeks, we are going to drop two episodes a week. This episode is brought to you by the Spark Media Conference. This year, Spark is partnering with the National Religious Broadcasting to offer their Spark Conference as an affiliate event at the NRB 2021. It takes place on June 22nd to the 24th at the Gaylord Texan in Grapevine, Texas. For a complete list of speakers and all of the details, go to sparkmedia.ventures. This episode of By His Grace is for all of my faith-based entrepreneur friends out there. I get a sneak peek behind the scenes with three of the Harmon brothers, Neil, Daniel, and Jeffrey. They are the creative genius behind Angel Studio and the Harmon Brothers Advertising Agency. You may recognize Angel Studios from their popular television series, The Chosen, or Dry Bar Comedy. And if you've ever seen an ad for Squatty Potty, Poopery, or Purple Mattress, then you've seen an ad that was created by the Harmon Brothers. On this episode, we talk about their entrepreneurial roots, how they got started, what it's like to work with family, and they offer wisdom to fellow faith-based entrepreneurs. So welcome the Harmon Brothers to By His Grace. Welcome to By His Grace. I am so honored to have three of the Harmon brothers here with me today. Gentlemen, welcome to By His Grace. Thank you, Misty. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm super excited about this interview because you are a family of entrepreneurs. And so we're going to jump right into this, but not just entrepreneurs, you are entrepreneurs that are making a difference in the world for good. So I'm super excited about this, but I have to know, how did this entrepreneurial spirit get started? What was the catalyst that propelled uh, this entrepreneurial spirit? I, it, I think... Um... I like to say that uh, we've all seen the bottom of the barrel and we're not afraid of what that's like. We grew up in, in circumstances that by American standards would be considered poor. Um, but we had an idyllic childhood playing in trees behind our house, playing on farmland, swimming in canals and um, trying to figure out how to make ends meet. So I think because I've seen families that um, were poor and, and then all the children end up going towards careers of security. And I see other families who, who, because they went through that experience, end up becoming very entrepreneurial. And for some reason, our family was the latter. Because yeah. I've looked at every single one of our siblings and, and there's an entrepreneurial um, thread that goes throughout our entire family. Yeah, that's great, Neil. Thanks. Um, so how did your parents uh, support all of your big ideas? So um, I have an example. Just I, when I was 11 years old, I was trying to figure out how to go. I, I was switching from public school to a private school. Our parents didn't have the money to pay for it. And um, I needed to figure out a way to pay for tuition. 
And, um, and so I, I don't even know where the idea came from. It may even have been my parents that came up with the idea, but, but the idea was to go take potatoes from our grandpa's farm in Idaho down to Utah where my dad was working and sell them in my other grandpa's neighborhood. He was a, uh, a university professor at Brigham Young University. And so went to his neighborhood. And so my dad drove us up and drove me up in the Ford Taurus when we picked up 600 pounds of potatoes and garbage sacks from my mom's dad's farm and then drove down to my grandpa's neighborhood with the wheels scraping the wheel well. Yeah. <laughs> 600 pounds is like, that's like six or seven people. So a tourist, yeah, that's about as much as it can do. And so in his Ford Taurus, but he would patiently go up, take me up to the, the potato cellar, we'd pack them up and then drove down. And then I went and sold them, put, made a little script and would knock on people's door at 11 years old and say, hi, I'm Jeffrey Harmon. I'm Frank Harmon's grandson, who was their neighbor. And I'm selling fresh Idaho potatoes from my other grandpa's farm in Idaho and to pay for my school tuition. And I, I could, I sold like $110 of potatoes in the first hour. And I was like, Oh, well, this is going to work. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I, I'm sure your parents were super supportive in, in, in that. Um, I know for, for myself, I've got some entrepreneurial kids of my own and one of them wanted to go to a mock trial competition that he had won, but we couldn't afford to send him. And so I encouraged him to make a music CD at Christmas that he could sell. And he used the proceeds from his. So I'm sure your parents kind of knew your giftings, knew what was available and sort of edged you on in, in, in that way. Um, did you want to say something else, Jeffrey? Oh, I was just going to say oh, grandparents as well. Like our grandpa Stoker, who's passed on now, he let us use his potatoes and sold them to us at the same rates that he would sell them like bulk to, to Simplot, the place that makes all the McDonald's French fries. And then um, our grandpa Harmon, he would let me borrow his, he's a six foot five guy, but he'd let me borrow his bicycles, which were way too big. And I'd have to jump up on top of it to, to ride it. And then I would try to carry sacks of potatoes down to people's houses using the bicycle maneuvering or sometimes walk them down if it was a big pile of potatoes. But yeah, so there was a lot of support going on from, from our immediate family and extended family. And there's something else interesting about that story that, that occurs to me is the fact that we were participating in that private school. The private school is called American Heritage Academy. And um, I think there was something about our parents and grandparents who, who, that they taught us the principles of freedom and, um, and uh, free trade. And we were going to that school in order to learn those principles, but we were having to figure out how to pay our own way at the same time. So, um, Yeah, I don't know how you paid for it. I paid I, for it with potatoes. I did, the, uh, I did a... I did a um, um, like I've set up a shop there at the school and I'd go to Costco and I would buy flats of, of food. And then I would go down and sell candy it. Bars. At a, yeah. Like you say three, food, four X candy bars. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was pop candy bars, whatever. I mean, it was tons of junk food. So, um, and that's the way I paid for my school. It's just selling to all the other students. 
Neil was the Neil was the school vending machine. <laughs> <laughs> we, we actually all helped out in that little food stand too. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, y'all work together as a family and, and I know the joy of that because we, um, my husband and I work together and, and our family, our son, um, has his own business, but it's related to ours. So very similar to some of the things that y'all are doing, because I know that you work together and you have separate businesses and you support one another, but that can be challenging to distinguish between family and business and, but it can also be super, super rewarding. So I would love for y'all to just um, tell me how that has been a success for you. So one thing about this is a lot of people ask, how, how do you work together as siblings? And so I started digging up examples because I was like, no, siblings are actually really powerful if they work together, but they can work together. And everybody says it's a rule. You shouldn't work with siblings. You should work with family. Yeah. But if you like, here's some examples of you got the Wright brothers, you have Warner brothers, you have Neiman Disney, Brothers, Disney that's not Brothers. Right. Disney Brothers. You've got Dassler Brothers with Adidas and Puma. You got the Coke Brothers, Coke Industry. Gucci was founded by brothers. Um, there's the Mayo Clinic was founded by the Mayo Brothers. So some of the biggest like successes in in not just the film world, but around around the world have been when siblings figure out how to work together and not, not let it rip them to pieces. Right. So. Absolutely. Even some of the big food entrepreneurs that started off in, um, in big food companies were, were brothers that started, you know, the restaurants that we still go to today and some of the food companies. So yeah, it can definitely be a a success because you know each other well. Um, but I know that it can also be uh, challenging, but I think at the end of the day, if, uh, you know, you just remember that you love each other and your family and it's kind of like with it, with, uh, you know, like my husband and I, we will never get divorced. Like that's off the table. So we can argue and um, come back together and know that it's all going to work out at the end of the day. So that's, that's a beautiful thing. It's like my wife and I, we just say that we don't say the D word. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not, it's not in the vocabulary in our marriage or our house. That's right. And, and the um, saying, you know, with, with siblings, there's a, I think the bigger problem is for the people we work with because there's some, a lot of intuitive stuff that comes when you, you communicate well when you're siblings without even talking sometimes. And then a lot of the people in the company are like, I had no idea the company changed this. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you see that over Armin Brothers, but yeah. here. Yeah, it's, it's, we, well, we've had to embrace systematizing a bunch of things because at first we were so familiar working together and just kind of took for granted that that not everybody was on the same page. And so we've had to implement different, you know, systems and training and things like that. So, so that it, it permeates the culture rather than um, just feeling like it's going to happen automatically. But I would echo what Jeffrey says that at the end of the day, um, relationships are going to be more important than, um, than, than business and then money. And I think we've seen firsthand in, in um, uh, some close family relationships that have been hurt by, um, by hard feelings of, of, of different business decisions and things that have been made. And, um, 
and I think we just kind of all decided the same way, kind of taking divorce off the table of that relationship, just kind of taking out like, this isn't going to ruin, like we're, we're going to make business decisions together. We're going to work together and we're going to disagree at times and, and even, even passionately. Um, but at the end of the day, we're not going to let this ruin our, our relationships that the relationship is ultimately going to be more, um, more lasting, more eternal than any of the money or the success that might come along. Yeah, that's great. Daniel, now that I'm talking to you, I'd love to know more about the Harmon Brothers. So you are responsible for some of the craziest, most successful ads like Squatty Potty. I about fell out when I saw that ad. Uh, Purple, I know you've got lots of different um, uh, ads that are super successful. So what is the secret uh, behind the Harmon Brothers success? Well, there's a lot of them. <laughs> if, I, if I was to boil it down to a lot of things, I mean, first, first and foremost, we have a really great team of, of creatives that um, make all that happen. So it's never just one person. Um, and I would say so much of it really starts with us choosing products and services that we believe in. Um, so trying something like a, a purple mattress or a squatty potty and really being like, okay, this, is, this genuinely makes people's lives better. I want other people to know about it. And then um, so, much of, so much of the concepts and the ideas kind of come from that place of thinking like a customer would, of actually having that aha moment with a product of like, wow, this thing is really cool. Um, like, for example, oh, uh, Lumi deodorant. Oh, this really, this really works for me. And, and, um, and so that's our starting point is that we we're careful about um, who we partner with and what products we promote, but it has to be something that we believe in and we're passionate about. I always say around here that nothing sells better than the truth. And I, I believe that, that when you're authentic and um, that belief comes through in the way that you present uh, the creative. And so that's one of the things. And then um, aside from that, well, obviously we've, we've leaned heavily on, um, on humor uh, to be able to communicate messages that are either, um, a taboo, something like, you know, colon health with the squatty potty or, or, you know, the smell of poo, like with something like, um, poopery or, or with Lumi or discussing things that maybe are a little bit more boring <laughs> and bringing some life to that of uh, something that could uh, like click funnels that could maybe be uh, seen as a little bit more boring or, um, a taboo subject like, um, like, uh, abortion. Um, we did a campaign, uh, for that, for say the storks or, or for pornography. Um, we did one with uh, covenant eyes. So humor is a really good tool to educate because it kind of catches people off guard. And we rely very heavily on, um, very comedic writers, people that have a lot of experience in, in, in writing comedy, either from a stand-up background or an improv or sketch comedy background of some kind. And they bring um, that tool set to our ads. And that's, that's very helpful. And then I think we've just done a good job of mixing worlds of storytelling with branding, with um, traditional marketing of like direct response marketing of like getting people to buy right then to run their credit card right away to make an order immediately. We've kind of mixed those th two things together in a way that um, has now become known as kind of like a, a Harmon Brothers ad. And so and that's where a lot of success, success has come from. So long winded answer to a short question. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, you definitely have a signature look. You can tell when I see an ad, I was like, oop, that's Harmon Brothers. So yeah, that's great. Well, you mentioned comedy. So let's, um, let's talk about the dry bar for a second. Uh, Jeffrey, when um, the dry bar was pitched to investors, what was the response? So, well, we initially, there's a, a filmmaker in Utah named Isaac Halasima, and he, he had done some stuff, but he came and talked to us and he said, he pitched us this idea of doing clean stand-up that um, he's like, I can go get some good clean comedians and I can shoot a show like Netflix does and it won't cost very much money. Can I just do a couple of shows? We came back to him and said, how about we do 50 over the next three months? Because we thought it was a good idea. We pulled the trigger on that and then we went back to investors and told them what we were doing. And we got a lot of really mean emails. <laughs> like, I don't know if they're mean or just deeply concerned. Like, what I are you did, guys doing? Yeah, what are you guys doing? This is this is a saturated market. This is um everybody's stand-up is totally nobody's interested in a bunch of clean comedians. Um, and that, that was based on just kind of looking at the world from the, the perspective that they see. Netflix does tons and tons of stand-up. Showtime does tons of stand-up. HBO, HBO does their stand-up. Yeah. So there's all... Comedy Central does tons of stand-up. But what, what I think people missed was that you have two different groups of people. You have your, your, your audience that wants clean comedy. You know, your audience that wants funny comedy, if you do it like a Venn diagram, you know, two circles and they overlap in the middle. And in the middle, you have like Jerry Seinfeld and ben, uh, and Gaffigan and Regan. Regan. And, you know, and back in the day, you had Cosby, but he's turned out to be a, a dud. But <laughs> um, so so you you have these two areas and these biggest comedians are in the middle and they kind of die. They, they're so funny you don't even realize that they're clean. And we're like, what if we take the world of kind of, there's kind of this Christian stand-up world that's, they're not usually, there's a few that are really good and most of them are not great comedians. And they can survive because they're in a world without high competition. But what if we could just combine those two, like expand the middle in the Venn diagram to hundreds of comedians. And so at the beginning we went and we got clean comedians and had them come in and do their shows. And then we realized pretty quickly we could actually get funny comedians that have a desire to be clean. A lot of these comedians, they tell us, I just went the way I did because that's where the market wanted me to go. And they're thrilled that they get to come kind of change their brand. And so you take, you take the two worlds and you say, okay, let's take funny comedians and just have them clean up their show. And, and then you actually increase the size of the market because there's about a third of Americans who just don't watch any stand-up other than those core top ones that are clean. They don't even know that there's thousands of comedians all over the country doing tours. They're unaware of this entire market because they're just, it's too blue. It's, it's full of landmines for them. So if we can create a brand where no matter what the comedian's done in the past, if they come to a clean show with us, you can trust them. You can trust that show. And so that, that's the idea. And we went and we invested in three seasons. It was pretty scary, investing well over a million dollars, maybe a couple million. I'm not sure. I don't remember how much yeah, we, we invested. A few million. Yeah. And um, yeah, two million. Okay. So, and then finally it broke even after three seasons. 
and over 150 comedians filmed, but now it's, it's doing super well. It's got over a billion views a year. Um, we have like Jeff Allen, who's a favorite comedian on, on the show. He said he's been in comedy for so long and he's one of the guys who's clean before and already very funny. And he told me, he's just like, he's like, Jeff, the dry bar comedy is like Johnny Carson back in the day. You get in dry bar and it just totally changed my career. It's like, I've been working at this for years and years and years. I do, did dry bar and now I'm sold out every single auditorium across the country because of dry bar. So, so it's a, it's a very interesting model. Um, Anything I missed about that? Well, I, I Colin, 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 yeah, Colin Moulton. He said he has young children, and he'd been doing a blue comedy routine for a while. Bluer, he wasn't like super right, but I mean, just more than just he wanted clubs, to be. more than he wanted to be like something that he wasn't. He really didn't want to be known by his children as they grew up by this comedy routine, and so he came and performed, and he crushed it. And um, and he said afterwards that. Um, this was going to be his opportunity to change. And so um, he started doing his tour uh, with the dry bar show instead of the show that he'd been doing with the, with the, um, with the clubs. And so there's an actual change in the market. Not only is the market bigger because, you know, we're getting over a billion views. It's way more than comedy central standup gets. Um, but also, uh, it's um it's you know it's, comedians are having new opportunity now because there's this new expanded market that they can go a hundred percent after comedy that's funny for everyone well, instead of comedy that's just funny for a club uh with people and uh, in, in two thousand seventeen it was like pulling teeth to get comedians to show up to dry bar mm -hmm. they were nervous about it they weren't sure if they wanted to be a part of it now there's a list longer than we can possibly take to film asking to get in. So it's a, uh, yeah, it's definitely changing. It's changing the culture around the stand-up creator space, which was our goal. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and, and I think what Hollywood is missing and, and why you all are so successful is because families want good, clean entertainment that, um, you know, the com comedians you mentioned, like Gaffigan and um, Brian Regan, I mean, that's what my boys kind of grew up on. Um, but, but then when we would go to expand and watch something on another channel, it, you know, we just couldn't. I mean, because it's just not appropriate. And, and like you said, a lot of it's not even funny. So our family has loved uh, watching all the comedians in Dry Bar. So um, kudos to you. That's a great job. Well, we've seen tons and tons of people in our comments. They get like several comedians in and then suddenly they're like, wait a second. This is <laughs> <lean?"> <laughs> This is so funny. They had no idea until they just like get far enough and they start to realize, oh, this is a clean brand. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Well, that leads me to The Chosen, which that is the largest crowdfunded television series. And by the way, it's amazing. Um, it's so good that we watch it. And then we watched all the behind the scenes stuff. We watched the unveiled with Rabbi Jason. Now we bought the Bible study so we can take our kids through the Bible study. Um, because every time we watch it, it's like, there's so many layers to it. It's just, it's an incredible project. But 
when this came to you, what, when somebody said, Hey, let's, let's do another Jesus thing. Um, what was your guys's response? And then, um, just tell me about the chosen. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll give you my response because, um, my response was probably mirrored a lot of people who, and a lot of people out there that hear about the chosen and haven't yet tried it. But my response, Jeffrey was introduced to the chosen by um, a mutual friend between Dallas Jenkins and, and us, uh, Matthew Faraci. And he watched it. He came to me and he said, I, cause we were looking at the time uh, we had succeeded with dry bar. And now we were looking for a scripted series to do crowdfunding. Yeah. Yeah. Cause dry bar, we did it crowdfunding for the company and we used company money. Yeah. Cause we needed to prove a series. Yeah. And then we're like, now let's just do crowdfunding specifically for a series. series. Yeah. So we, so we were, we were looking for the show and we had looked at lots of different shows and Jeffrey comes to me and says, I think I, I think we've got our show. I think I've found the show. And, and I said, well, what's it about? Uh, cause he wanted me to watch a 20 minute pilot and, and I was very busy and, and he said, well, it's about Jesus. <laughs> and I said, no. <laughs> no, I'm not doing a show about Jesus. We're a for-profit company. That's, you know, that's the job of nonprofits and churches. We're, we're not going to do a show like that. And he said, you'll just watch it. And Jeffrey has a pretty good sense for con, well, better sense than me for content. Um, and, um, and I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. So I sat down, put on some headphones and watched this show. And, um, and, it, you know, the world around me disappeared and I got to see the birth of Christ through the eyes of a shepherd. And that shepherd, me having grown up in Idaho, working on farms, working alongside migrant workers, being in, in some respects, I was an outcast in my own community because of some of the choices that I had made and some of the, and the, and the choices that our family had made. We were taking that path less traveled than others. It was very unusual to do homeschooling or private school. Private school. Yeah. We grew up. Yeah. To the point you get ridiculed at church. Yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, we were, I, I, I was, and I, I really empathized with, um, the migrant workers in, in Idaho who, who were looked down upon because of their, you know, their race or they couldn't speak English or whatever. So when I saw this shepherd who was limping, go through and experience the birth of Christ and him to be the first one to hold him. It just felt so true to me, even though I knew it wasn't necessarily the story. It just felt so true that that would something like that would happen. And, um, and so experience. And then as soon as I took off the headphones, you know, I had tears in my eyes and Jeffrey said, what do you think? And I said, I think this is the reason we made Vid angel. And um, I uh, suddenly understood wait a second, this is, this is a project that needs to be done by us by, needs, a for -profit. by a for profit company that can get as large and as broad of distribution as possible. And that doesn't have to navigate the, um, the committees and the, and the decision by committee that often occurs inside of churches. Um, instead it can, it can be a, a creative project first and then a faithful project second. Um, and I, I saw it. And so, um, not just that when a project has a profit engine, the profit engine can drive it to reach a billion people. That's right. That's right. 
that's that is the, the current engine. And we've had lots of people who've said to us when, when they invested in the chosen and in Bit Angel, where they said, you know what, I'm giving my money because I want this to happen. I don't care if I lose all my money. And we say thank you and we appreciate it. But, we're but in our mind, money. in our mind, we're thinking when we make it, when we make money, when we make a profit, then that means that we're actually achieving what you wanted to do with the money. So we need to make a profit so that it will grow to more and more and more Not people. Just that when they get back the profits, if I guess I have to say if, if because yeah. of the S and C, but but if they make back a profit, which I think is likely now, um, they will. These people are going to do good things with that. <laughs> That's right. Like they're going to go put it somewhere, somewhere good for the world. So it's a good group of people to be to be partners with. Yeah. Yeah, I want to commend y'all for just the excellence of which it's done. My husband and I have a, a saying that we we call it crappy Christian. You know, so sometimes people will do things and they don't do it with excellence, although the Bible tells us that we should do it all with excellence. And so as Christians, we should, people that, you know, are faith-based people, we should be doing things with excellence. And that's something that I, I, I see in the work that you're doing. And so I commend that. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned about uh, being able to, the investors and sort of being able to give back. So I'm going to throw the question now to Daniel, because you're talking about free market principles. Just FYI, y'all, I homeschooled my boys all the way through as well. And so back in the day when we started, I know what that's like. But also, we were able to teach them these principles of free market and freedom and to think freely. And um, I think that that's what's missing in the general population. So I'm super excited about the work you're doing with the Tuttle Twins. So let's talk about that, Daniel. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Neil and Jeffrey already mentioned that we we went to a little private school. It was actually run by our uncle. Um, and the curriculum in it was largely based around teaching about history and economics and kind of the human condition, how we kind of, as societies and cultures, we repeat the same mistakes over and over again if we're not living by the right principles. And so we taught about these principles of freedom. And, and um, as I became older um, and, you know, had my own kids, I've got, I've got, I have seven kids and wanted to teach them about this stuff. Um, the resources, I mean, I didn't have my uncle around anymore um, to be able to do that. I didn't, not everybody has that foundation. And um, there just weren't a lot of resources out there to be able to teach about these principles. And then um, uh, a friend of ours, Connor Boyag, um, made a book. Um, called The Law, uh, which I've got right here, um, based on Frederick Bastier's um, The Law. He was a French economist and it teaches about, teaches about rights. The, the, the proper role of government is limited to rights that it protects for the individual. And um, I bought it immediately, read it with my kids, loved it. And then it was extremely successful. And then he ended up writing, you know, like a dozen others. And, and, and I bought all those and read those with my kids and um, was extremely excited about the series. And then eventually he was like, well, I think with the success of this book series, because it's, it's sold over 2 million copies now um, that, they've, that they've sold of this. And he's like, I think I want to make this into a cartoon. And then um, uh, a business partner of mine and I reached out to him and said, no, we want to make it <laughs> into a cartoon for you. And uh, Jeffrey was part of that um, initially as well. And, and so we partnered up with Connor to make the Tuttle Twins series, make the principles of the Tuttle Twins series into a cartoon for kids. And not just one that's educational, but one that they'll choose over their options on 
hopefully choose over their options on Disney Plus and Netflix and, and YouTube, um, something that's very entertaining, but then teaches those, those same principles. And so last year, um, we did crowdfunding for uh, the series and we were able to um, become the number one uh, crowdfunded show for kids in US history. Um, we raised a little over a million dollars. Um, we've opened that back up again for crowdfunding to finish out the funding of the entire first season. And, and just um, we opened that up last week and now we're over um, another half million dollars that we've added to that. Um, we're in production now on, um, uh, or I should say in development on six episodes and in production on four um, episodes currently. And we're looking to extend that to 12. And for people that are interested in investing in that, it's uh, Twins TV is where you'd go to search that out. But it's just, I'm, I'm just making the cartoon that I want for me and for my kids. And um, I know that there's a much larger audience that wants that based on kind of what Jeffrey Neal said, is that a, a large amount of our investors, maybe somewhere around uh, um, 25% or a third of them will say things like, I don't even care if I make a dime, a dime on this. I just want this to exist for my kids. I just want this for generations going forward. And of course, we want to make it a very successful business. And we feel like we have a really great path to do, to do that based on the success of The Chosen and based on the fact that this is a kid's show that is very merchandisable and those types of things. But um, at the end of the day, we feel like if we can change the hearts and minds of, of young kids uh, growing up, then the generations of the future will be affected for, for good. And um, just ultimately, these principles of freedom just aren't really being taught a whole lot in schools, not being taught a whole lot in culture, and definitely not being taught a whole lot um, by Hollywood. And so that's, that's what we're looking to do. Yeah, it's amazing. And I wish that this was around when my boys were little, uh, because I classically educated my kids too, and uh, started at the beginning when God created the world, and then went all through history, you know, a couple years at a time, we would go through all of history. And it's a life changing education. But most people don't get um, to experience that. So I commend you and the work that you're doing um, to all of you. But I'd love to just conclude this with um, your thoughts on if someone is, you know, has a faith-based business um, and an entrepreneurial spirit, what wisdom would you like to share with them? Um, our dad, one of his favorite poems, and um, our father, um, now each of us goes through our own, we carry our own cross, so to speak, in life. Um, the thing that we have to bear and, 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 and then call on Christ for his help to bear. Um, and our, our, our father, um, he has, uh, um, he has a favorite poem and, uh, it's, it's called, um, if by Rudyard Kipling. And there's a couple lines in that, um, poem that really, really have hit home for me. And they, I'm not going to be able to quote them perfectly, but they essentially say, uh, whether triumph or disaster that you treat those two imposters just the same. Our value doesn't come from success or failure. Our value comes from the growth that we have as we fail and as we learn from our failure. And as we don't give up, 
eventually we will succeed, right? We're on, we're, that's, our, that's our destiny as children of God is we will succeed. And so um, don't give up. And then don't, you know, I, I, I would just say that we don't derive our value from, from uh, the fact that our business failed or the fact that our business succeeded. Um, so I love that wisdom from my dad. Yeah, that's great. Um, Jeffrey, Daniel, anything to add to that? I have a good book for people to read called The User Method by Jeff Schwarting. Um, basically, all of the big companies that have ever been built, not all of them, but most of them are tied to this, this book, or not this book, but to, um, to this model which is, so you make a product for yourself that you want to exist, and there will be many, many other people in the world, likely, that also want that product. And he gives a, just a list of examples from Facebook to Dropbox, Apple, Ford, Uber, GoPro, Dropbox, Porsche, Instagram, Airbnb, YouTube, Spanx, Qualtrics, Sunrider, Patagonia, Basecamp, Pebble. He gives all these examples of entrepreneurs that just created something to solve their own problem. Like for example, Airbnb, they just needed to pay their rent. And so they found out there was a conference going on in, the, in San Francisco near their apartment. And so they pumped up air mattresses and rented out the air mattresses for the conference. And then they started their business on that. Um, but, and it, it basically a business to help people pay rent in their homes by renting out bedrooms, their mattress, Airbnb. It's become something much, much bigger. And so I, I would say reading that book is a good idea. The User Method by Jeff Schwarting. Excellent. Daniel, final, final words? Um, I do think it's possible to maintain your values and be in business at the same time. Um, it's not always easy. <laughs> kind of have to know what those lines are or, or you're not going to cross beforehand. Um, but um, I, think, I think it is uh, possible to do that. And it's something that uh, people should aspire to do. And I, I think they're... Um, I guess the one thing I'd say is for faith-based people is there can be an, a little bit of an inclination to... Um, feel like maybe, maybe sometimes we feel a little bit too much like God is telling us to do something in our business. <laughs> that might be possible. That might totally be possible. Um, and, and I'm not going to say that, that that doesn't happen because it's for sure. I've, I've felt that happen to me that the, the spirit presses on my heart and, and I, I feel like I'm supposed to do something or not do something. But I think if you get a little bit too much down that road, that that can, then you, I think God wants us to learn to make decisions and learn from the the mistakes and the errors of those decisions. And that ultimately he's provided um, a savior and a redeemer to overcome all those mistakes and all those sins and all those things that we just do as humans. And that's just part of the process. And if we embrace that, I think we're going to be better off than, than feeling like every, every last one of our business decisions is, is guided by God, as opposed to, I, I suppose in a way it is in that, you know, we're, we're his children, but I think, some, sometimes we can get a little bit too hung up on, on Daniel, that. Yes. Can I just add a little bit of color to that? Yes, you bet. Um, so I would just simply say, um, 
there's a big difference between looking back at something that's happening or or that has happened and giving God credit and, and recognizing yeah. I saw his hand in my life and then be, and then claiming that you have God's favor in the very moment that you're that you're acting I think those are two different things and the moment there's been lots of crazy things and will advise things that have been done in this world when people think that they have God's favor with them. Um, and it's pretty arrogant to think that you have God's favor with you, but it's very humble to look back and say, wow, he sure helped me out. Yeah. Or, or I think, I think revelation comes mostly, at least for me, without any type of words, my brain and my mind tries to put words to it. Mm -hmm. That's usually where it starts to, deviate from what I'm actually receiving as revelation. So looking back, it's easier to go, oh, yes, I can see very clearly hindsight where God was working um, and, being, and being open to those promptings and feelings while you're in the process. Uh, but a friend of ours said, guys, God's behind your company. You're going to succeed and you guys need to understand God's behind you and I can see it. We said, yeah, we've seen that he has helped us God has helped us through this whole process retrospectively. But if we suddenly say, Hey, God's behind us, Dallas, you need to change this about the chosen because God needs <laughs> <laughs> you. <laughs> Dallas isn't going to be very like receptive to that idea that like I have a revelation now, Dallas, because God's behind me. <laughs> we still all disagree all the time. And it's looking back where we're all seeking to do the right things, but it's looking back that you can recognize what, what he's done. And in the moment though, for me, it's always just be careful with what I'm receiving as a revelation, which comes as a, like these like deep moving, kind of knowing the direction I'm supposed to be going in versus words, which is very rare for me. And if I try to put words, that's usually where, I look at my journal entries and go, oh, this part was right, but I interpreted that totally wrong, <laughs> you know, based on yeah. some feelings I had. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to discourage prayer or anything like that or trying to seek God's guidance. I'm not saying that. I think they've encapsulated it well, that um, there's a difference, but that it's just kind of a fine line there. Yeah. Well, he is God and we are not. He is um, infinite and we are finite. So we're going to mess up um, and we're going to, you know, do the wrong things. I'm going to go back to something that a lesson that I learned this past weekend in watching the behind the scenes of The Chosen. And it was something that Dallas said. And he said, um, it's my job to show up with the fishes and the loaves. And it's God's job to feed the 5,000. And sometimes God even provides the fish. And that was a really great lesson for me as I'm going through a lot. I think we show up. We do our best. Um, it doesn't always work out. Um, but then God can turn that for good. And so, um, you know, that to me is just what it's all about. Showing up, doing our best, learn from our mistakes, and moving forward. So, gentlemen. You said it better, Misty. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, y'all. I have so enjoyed our time together, and we'll put links to all of the things that you mentioned and all of the places where people can find you and all of the amazing work that you are doing. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today on By His Grace. I hope you've enjoyed listening and are encouraged by our guest today. 
I would love for you to visit my blog, mistyphilip.com, for more encouragement. You can find me on social media as Misty Phillip, and I would love to connect with you there. 